0: The scripture reading today is from Colossians 1, 24 to 2, 5, and it says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good
1: morning, Redeemer. If you have your Bible, you can uh, open up with me to the passage that Brian just read for us, uh, Colossians 1, starting in verse 24. This morning, we're continuing our series through Colossians, which we've titled, Gospel Life, a Magnificent Monotony. Uh, As you turn there, I have a question for you. A show of hands, who here feels really uncomfortable whenever they're put in a situation where they have to talk about themselves? Anybody, you know, like an interview, a resume, you got, no one raised their hands. You guys are really self-confident. That's great. That is great. Uh, You know, I'm talking about a job interview, a resume, an application essay um, where they're basically like, tell us why you're awesome, but do it in a way where you're still likable, you know? My wife, Erin, just recently started grad school to be a nurse practitioner, so we had to go through this, the essay prompts. Tell us how you excelled at leadership in a high-pressure environment, do your personal and professional attributes, and how those attributes will ensure that you succeed in everything you try for the rest of your life in 250 words or less. I bring this up this morning because our passage that we're looking at today, here, Paul shifts in his in his speaking to a decidedly personal description of his life and ministry. And notice the, um, the prominence of first person voice throughout these verses. I rejoice, my sufferings, I am filling up, I became, given to me. But you see, Paul is doing this not in order to build himself up or to try to impress the Colossians. No, instead, he, he's just speaking from his personal experience and using his own personal example to demonstrate to the Colossians and to us what it means to participate in the body of Christ and to live as ministers of the gospel. Now he's not making this letter all about him and how great he is and how hard he's worked. Instead, he's simply using his life as an example to show us what it means to live the gospel life, to show us how Christ has transformed him what he lives for, what he is giving his life to. And from that, we learn what the gospel life should look like lived out in our lives, in our families, in our communities. As we walk through these verses this morning, we see three aspects of the gospel life. Three aspects. We're going to see that the gospel life involves making known a mystery. It involves self-giving for the sake of others. And all of this is done depending on the power of Jesus. First in the gospel life, we have been commissioned to make known a mystery. Now I'm gonna skip forward a little bit here. I'm gonna to go to verse 25. And I know a lot of you are like, Marshall, there's some weird stuff in verse 24 that I feel like you're skipping over. Don't worry, we're gonna go back to that. But let's look first at verse 25. Verse 25. Paul says in verse 25, for the sake of the church, he has become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations and now revealed to his saints. There are a few key words for us to note here. One of them is stewardship. Well, what is stewardship? Stewardship refers to what you do with something that has been entrusted to you. A steward manages, looks after, is responsible for something that someone else has given them to look after. And Paul says he has been given a stewardship, specifically a stewardship of the word of God, which he describes as a mystery that was previously hidden, but has now been revealed to Paul and to all followers of Jesus. He goes on to describe, well, what exactly would be a good, right stewardship of this word of God that we've received? Well, being a good steward of this mystery means making it known, proclaiming it to others, sharing it widely. You know, in life, there are, there are some pieces of information, uh, some secrets that people entrust you with, uh, in which case the responsible thing to do would be to keep it to yourself, right? There's some things where it's, uh, they're shared with you in confidence, things that maybe you're inappropriate or unwise or even unloving to share that story about that person, to share that struggle that they shared with you. But church, the mystery of the gospel is not one of these things. The mystery of the gospel is not entrusted to us to keep it quieter, to speak about it only amongst ourselves. It's been given to us in order for us to proclaim it, to make it known, to see it revealed as widely as possible. The truth of the gospel is given to us uh, to be spoken about, to be written about, to be sung about. How awesome is it that we get to gather together and sing the gospel over one another every Sunday? It is to be spoken about with candor and earnestness and, yes, with urgency. This is the life altering, life giving news that it would be irresponsible and unloving not to share with other people. By way of example, uh, have any of you guys seen the movie that came out recently, 1917? Have you guys seen that? I, don't worry, I'm not going to spoil it. This is, I usually try to give, if I give a movie illustration, at least five years before I will spoil something. This is just, everything here is in the trailer, right? 1917 is a movie set during World War I, um, and in the movie... British forces realize that the opposing German forces are actually not retreating, but they're repositioning themselves to take a a specific British regiment by surprise when they attack. And with the field telephone lines cut, the only way that the British can warn their fellow soldiers about this trap is by sending two young men to get there with the message as fast as they can. They're given a mission and they're entrusted with a message that is a matter of life And death to their fellow soldiers. Now, praise God, the success of the mission that we have been given does not rest in our hands alone. It doesn't depend on our ability. It's not up to us to accomplish in our own strength. We see Paul make that clear later on in this passage. But like those soldiers, we have been entrusted with the message and we have been given a mission to deliver this message. And so our lives should be marked by a priority and an urgency and an effort in sharing our hope in Jesus with other people. Church, we have been given a message of life to the dying, of freedom to the captive, of hope to the hopeless, of forgiveness to those haunted by the things that they've done, of love and acceptance to those who feel outside, who who feel unloved or unlovable. The gospel is the beautiful news that our sin has separated us from God, but that his love for us is so great that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he has made a way for us back to him. And that this is not something that we can earn or achieve or could ever deserve, but that it is freely given and simply received. As Pastor Tim Keller says, all you need is need. Acknowledge that need. Receive what Jesus is offering you he has done everything necessary to reconcile us to God. And we take hold of his work simply through faith. This mystery that God has commissioned Paul and us to, be, to make known, this mystery, Paul says in verse 27, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so we, along with Paul, as he says in verse 28, should live like this. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The gospel life is about making known a mystery we've been entrusted with. Secondly, the gospel life is about making known a mystery and it's also about self-giving for the sake of others. We're gonna spend most of our time here on this point. This is really the heart of the passage this morning, what Paul is declaring to the Colossians and to us. Now, I'm being intentional in this point about using the phrase self-giving in order to make a clarification. So when Paul says in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In this description of his ministry, he makes it clear that suffering, struggling is a part of what he's been called to. It is a part of the gospel life. But we we do need to be clear that in this particular context, he's talking about a specific kind of suffering. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. What he's talking about is a kind of suffering that he is consciously embracing by choosing to devote his life to the name of Jesus and to the good of his church. It's a suffering, it's a struggle, a toil that he has chosen to embrace, it's important to be clear about that and to make a distinction between the kind of suffering that we choose to embrace and, and a different kind of suffering and affliction that, uh, that is not connected to things that we choose or is not connected to what we have committed ourselves to. I'm thinking about the kind of suffering of sickness or disease, the loss of a loved one, the betrayal of someone we trusted. Certainly the Bible speaks to us about these things and it promises that God sees and knows and is with us in our pain He's our refuge. He invites us to come to him. He is our comforter. Praise God for that. But it's important, I think, to to make the distinction of the kind of suffering Paul is talking about here so that we're not in danger of of misinterpreting or misapplying scripture. There are times when we're suffering where we should not come to one another and say, hey, it's time to rejoice. There are times to sit with one another and, and weep with one another and hold fast to Christ with one another. Uh, That's an aside there to make the distinction here. But the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about is a conscious giving of himself over for the name of Jesus and the good of his church. And in committing to that, he is embracing whatever discomfort, challenge, hardship, or loss comes as a result. I really love the way that Pastor Mark Dever describes this. He says that Paul's life was defined by a strenuous self-giving for others, It was defined by a laying his life down for the good of others. And of course, in, in living like this, Paul is simply imitating Jesus, the ultimate example of selflessness, the one who willingly suffered and died on the cross for our sake. As Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The gospel teaches us that Jesus embraced suffering for our sake. And so now as we live out the gospel life that he's given us, we embrace suffering for the sake of others. Now, as Paul continues in verse 24, we get to what is really the trickiest part of this passage. In fact, just personally, my perspective, I feel like what he says next in verse 24 is just on its face, one of the most confusing things that Paul has ever written. If you feel the same way, I hope that you'll take some solace from that and from the fact that yes, even biblical commentators agree this is tricky. We have to dig in to make sense of what Paul means here. Here's what I'm talking about. In in verse 24, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church i am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions say what now this sounds like the kind of thing that like if i was to get up here on a sunday morning and say church i'm here to tell you this morning about what is lacking in Christ's afflictions and how I'm going to fill them up. That's the kind of thing that as soon as I said that, like Eric comes up and puts an arm around me and is like, "Church, let's thank Marshall for his time with us. We had a good run. The Lord is calling him elsewhere." I mean, obviously the apostle Paul rightfully gets more benefit of the doubt than me. But what does this mean? How can Christ and what he accomplished be lacking in any way? Is is there something that was left undone or unfulfilled? Didn't Paul just get done telling us in the verses before this that Jesus is sovereign and supreme and preeminent? How can anything about him and what he's done for us be lacking? Well, Paul is not contradicting himself. He's not contradicting the gospel. There is nothing lacking when it comes to the redeeming, atoning work of Christ. So what is lacking? To better wrap our minds around this, I want to ask you to turn with me just a few pages over to the chapter I just referenced a few moments ago to Philippians 2. If you turn with me to Philippians 2. As we seek to understand challenging passages it's really helpful to take into account the broader context of scripture, not just to take the passage or the verse in isolation, but to say, how does this fit into the biblical narrative as a whole? How does this single verse fit into what the author is saying throughout the letter? And in this case, especially, how does it relate to what we read elsewhere in the Bible? Is there similar phrasing? Is there similar imagery? Are there connections that can be drawn out? Well, Philippians is another letter that Paul wrote to another church also while he was in prison, just like Colossians. And, and here in Philippians 2, Paul writes this. Philippians 2.25, he writes to the Philippians, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. So right there, what do we see? We see that Paul is sending a man named Epaphroditus back to the Philippians after they originally sent him to minister to Paul while he was in prison. Epaphroditus was their messenger and their minister, go to Paul, show Paul our great care and love for him, help meet his needs. And then a few verses later, as he's continuing to talk about Epaphroditus, in verse 30, he says, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me could also be translated to fill up what was lacking in your service to me. See, Paul uses the same phrasing in Colossians and Philippians in these two passages we're looking at. If you're into Greek, you can go. If you brought, did anyone bring their Greek New Testament this morning? One, yeah. yes, all right, hey, impressive. You can look and see that the root of the words that he uses in both of these places are, are the same. He's talking about filling up completing what is lacking. And that's significant because the comparison helps inform our understanding of what Paul means in Colossians. Here's what I mean. Think about the the case here in Philippians. What was lacking in the Philippians' care for Paul that needed to be fulfilled by Epaphroditus? It was the in-person, present, tangible, physical, visible application of their love and care. They cared dearly for Paul. They loved him deeply. And because of that, they commissioned Epaphroditus to go and be their means of communicating and applying their love for Paul. In the same way, in Colossians 1, when Paul says he is filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, he's not at all diminishing the power of Christ and his gospel and his love for us. Rather, he is simply stating the mission that he's been given, to be a messenger and a minister to the people of God. He has been commissioned by Jesus to communicate and apply the truth and the power and the love of God that is ours in Christ. It's not that Jesus forgot to do something or left something undone, or there's something that we have to do to finish what he started. No, we have been commissioned and empowered by Jesus to continue his work. Jesus is not lacking. No, Jesus has commissioned us to continue to carry this out. We are to go and make disciples by being the in-person, present, tangible, physical application of what Jesus has done. This is what it means to fill up what is lacking. It is just being the gospel witness that Jesus has called all of us to be. And yes, that is a path that involves some suffering, some giving of ourselves, some dying to ourself. But Jesus himself told us that, didn't he? In Matthew 16, 24, he tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But Jesus promises that none of the suffering that we undergo for his sake, none of the sacrifice, the giving that he calls us to will be wasted that none of us will be facing it alone because he is with us. And he promises us the whole sum of anything that we have to give, of anything that we have to lay down is not even worth comparing to our glorious eternity with him. In fact, it is by laying our lives down that we find the newness of life in him. And it is through laying our lives down that Jesus promises to be at work in and through us to advance and expand and extend the gospel in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our cities. As Paul declares to us here, this is a suffering that can be embraced and rejoiced in because it's worth it. Because it is Christ's means of proclaiming his great love to those around us. Now, As we get practical, how do we do this? How how do we live as a demonstration and a declaration of the gospel? It, It is highly unlikely, I think, that many of us in here this morning will ever be called to the same kind of suffering that Paul endured in his ministry, being beaten, being stoned, being imprisoned. And we should praise God for that, for the religious freedom that we enjoy in our country. But on the flip side, the freedom that we enjoy can sometimes make us prone to cling all the tighter to our comforts and our preferences and our conveniences, can't it? Sacrifice and self-giving for us comfortable people, they begin to feel like these strange, foreign, extreme kind of measures. When the reality for Paul, for early Christians in the New Testament and for many of our fellow believers who don't enjoy the same freedoms as us across the globe today, this is really just one of the first steps of counting the cost to follow Jesus. So for us, Redeemer, what does self-giving for the sake of others look like in our context? What does it look like to lay our lives down in the name of Jesus for the good of our brothers and sisters here in our church body and for the good of our neighbors that they might come to know Christ? Here's where I think we begin. I think it starts here within our church family by being willing to really invest in relationships enough to really know and be known by one another, to to commit to intercede for one another in prayer, to commit to check in and and encourage one another, to view the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ, not as their burdens, man, that, that sucks for them, but as our burdens, as our family's burdens, as your burdens, We start to see the needs of our church and our ministries, not as someone else's problem to figure out, but as our problem. Look, right now we have some significant needs in our children's ministry. God has blessed and entrusted our church with so many children to be cared for and to and And our volunteers are doing an amazing job, but they need more help. Living a a self-giving life is not saying, man, hope those parents figure it out. But even if you're single, even if you don't have any children is saying, man, our, our church family needs some help in children's ministry. Can I, can I do that? Can I help meet that need? It also means that when we transition out of certain serving roles, because there is a time when that is healthy and appropriate. This church was planted 10 years ago and some of you have been carrying a lot of the load and some of you are, are needing to enter into a period of a little bit more rest or you're in a period of rest right now. And that's good but it means that when we take a step back from a certain role that we don't just check out, but we say, okay, how can I coach? How can I invest in? How can I encourage those who are stepping up in my place? Some of you have been living this self-giving gospel proclaiming life inside and outside the church for for 10 years and even longer than that. And we, we wanna commend you and we wanna thank you. And we also wanna say, hey, we need you. We need you to help us. We need you to coach us and to lead us in this. These are all the kind of ways that we, we can lay our lives down for one another and be the kind of community that Paul describes in Colossians 2 2 when he says that he wants to see them knit together in love. What beautiful imagery. And hey, can, can I take a moment to praise you, Redeemer? Do you mind? I'm going to, so. In my time here with you, from, from my perspective, you have shown yourselves to be truly exemplary in how you care for one another. Again and again, I've seen evidence that this church's members are knit together in love. And that is something to celebrate. I thank God for it. I commend you for it. And, and my wife and I, we've benefited greatly from it. Let's praise God that he has given us a spirit of unity and love for one another. And let's ask him to help us to to continue to build on that foundation of love for one another by now asking ourselves, how can we share this love with others? How can we share this love with people who are new to our church? How can we share this love with our neighbors? I was talking to one of the volunteer leaders at our church a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, Marshall, sometimes I I worry that a newcomer could come into our church and their, their first the first impression of our church would be, man, these people love each other a lot. How do I fit into that? Church, let's strive so that no newcomer would ever have to ask that question. Where do you fit into it? You belong here. You're welcome here. You can be a part of our family. This is what self giving looks like. This is what embracing this kind of love looks like. It, it looks like now that we've established co- close community and dear friendships, which are a hot commodity in a transient area like ours. Now that we have those things, we don't just hold them tight to enjoy them for ourselves, but we, we look to welcome others in. Here are some questions regarding this. I would love for us to start with as we consider this. Who do I talk to on Sunday mornings? Is it only the people that I know? Is it, is it only people from my community group? How can I be more welcoming? If I meet someone new, what could I invite them to? Uh, an event that's coming up, a game night, grabbing lunch after church? Or, or how about this? If our community group is running out of space for new people, what steps can we take to open up more room for them? Who might God be calling from our group to go and plant a new one? And yes, that, that does require sacrifice. It means that your group will change. It means that you'll have to be a little more intentional about getting time with, with the people who are going off and starting a new group. It is a sacrifice, but what a sacrifice worthy of making and rejoicing in to be able to expand, to be able to share the kind of community that has meant so much to you with other people who don't have those kind of relationships to be able to pay forward the gift that God has given us. It is a sacrifice, but it's one with exponential impact in our ability to welcome others. And then finally, there's a way that this self-giving extends outside of our church family. We are to lay our lives down for our neighbors, for our community, for our city, for our coworkers, for our, our gym members. How does this happen? Well, it happens when we take time to build real friendships. It happens when we carve out time in our day to have real conversations, to get time with people, to open up our lives and our homes to them, to take time to to ask for their stories and to listen well. It means embracing the risk of an awkward conversation or by rejection, by initiating conversations about the gospel. And it means that in the case that we get mocked for our faith, that we continue to love and to give and to serve anyway. It means that we don't relate to our cities just as consumers to get whatever we can out of our experience in Arlington or DC, but it means that we leverage our lives for the good of our neighbors because our God cares about human flourishing. Our God cares about the person in the apartment across the hall. Our God cares about your neighbor who is really annoying to wrap up this point, uh, here's a story that I think is a really great illustration of this idea. Uh, J. Oswald Sanders, who for years was the director of a missions organization shared this story of an indigenous missionary in India, who, whose ministry involved walking barefoot um, from village to village in India to share the gospel where Christ had never been named. As you can imagine, this ministry was hard. It was hard physically on him. It was hard spiritually going into places where he was a stranger and he didn't know what kind of hearing the gospel would receive. Well, once uh, this man, after a long day of uh, many miles and uh, much discouragement and how people were responding to him, uh, he came to a specific village. He went in, he tried to speak the gospel, and he was run out of town. He was rejected. And just feeling that rejection, feeling that discouragement of, man, I don't know what to do next. Um, he walks outside the town, he, he goes up to a tree, he sits down, and he just falls asleep out of exhaustion. Well, he wakes up a little while over um, to pretty much the whole town gathered around him, looking at him sleeping. And he says, uh-oh, what's going on here? Well, one of the leaders of the village explains to him, you know, we came to get a better look at you while you were sleeping, not the most comforting thought we came to get a better look at you and that's when we noticed your bare, blistered, battered feet. And we said, this man must be a holy man to be willing to suffer so much to come to tell us something. They were sorry and they wanted to hear the message that he had brought them, the message that was so important that he was willing to suffer so much that they could hear it. Look, in in all of the examples that I've talked about, they all cost us something. They all involve giving of our resources or our time or our energy or our relationships. Walking this path of the self-giving life is sometimes going to blister our feet. But as Paul proclaims here, the opportunity to give is a reason to rejoice. Because in this self-giving life, we are continuing the work of Christ and putting his gospel on display. And it's through our blisters, our willingness to follow Jesus in the pattern of laying our lives down that God works to put his love and his glory most clearly on display. Well, finally, uh, briefly, the third thing that we see about the gospel life, it's about making known a mystery. It's about self-giving for the sake of others. And this final point is crucial for us to remember as we begin to pursue what we've talked about this morning. As we seek to live this way, we are not called to do it all alone. We're not called to do it by our own strength or power or stamina. Now, Paul makes it clear that this life is lived in full dependence upon the power of Jesus at work within us. As we go, as we seek to proclaim, as we seek to give, we do so not by our own power, but by the power of Jesus at work within us. Look at verse 29. Paul says, for I toil, struggling. So there is effort here, there's hard work, but where is the strength? Where is the energy for this work found? Not in Paul alone, but in Christ. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This strenuous self-giving cannot be done, at least not effectively, sustainably, joyfully. It can't be done on your own. It can't be done on your own power. It can't be done out of, out of a human love, out of a human passion, out of a human energy. The life we're called to live is one that is only possible by the power of Christ at work within us. If you're listening to what I'm saying to what we're called to this morning and you're thinking, God, this kind of sounds like something a little beyond what I'm capable of, then you're hearing me rightly. It is, but here's the great news. The great news is that God both calls us to something beyond our abilities and then provides his power to make it happen. In the kingdom of God, the only ability that you need to be used greatly by God is availability. He hasn't called you to go out and conquer the world. He's just called you to simple faithfulness, to willingness to say, Jesus, I wanna live a self-giving life for your glory. Give me the wisdom to know the next steps to take and give me the strength to take them. If you wanna be used by God, the first thing to do is not to go charge out into the world on your own. The first thing to do is to seek him, to rest in him, to depend upon him, to know him, to love in him, to delight in him, to rest in his love and acceptance of you. And then to go out into the world from that, expecting to see his power at work in you, putting yourself in positions where you need his power, the positions where you say, all right, God, I I believe your power is at work within me. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And if he doesn't show up, this thing's not going to work. Church, I truly believe that so many of us experience so little of the power of God in our lives because we so seldom put ourselves in a position where we need to call upon God's power. We're saying, God, where is your power at work in my life? And he's saying, you're living like you got it covered. Devote yourself to his purposes, imitate Christ in pouring yourself out for others. Step into a place where there's no denying you need God's help. And like Paul, you will come to know the energy of God powerfully at work within you. This is the life that we've been given. This is the example that Paul puts on display as he imitates Jesus. And it's the life that I I pray that we will seek to live together. A life of making known the mystery, of self-giving for the sake of others, of doing it all by the power of Jesus, of being willing to walk with blistered feet for the sake of Arlington, for the sake of DC, for the sake of Redeemer. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. You were willing to lay your life down for us, to suffer, to die, so that we could know you, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could live in the fullness of life, freedom, forgiveness, joy, hope, Lord, we want to be good stewards of the gospel and of the salvation that you have freely given us. We want to proclaim this mystery, God. Help us to lay our lives down. Lord, give us a a clear, beautiful, captivating vision of you so that we can know it's worth it, God. Whatever cost to our time or our energy or our resources. You're worth it, Jesus. Lord, make us into your messengers and your ministers of the gospel in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our city, everywhere that you've placed us, Lord. And as we go, God, may we not go out of obligation, may we not go out of anything other than a sense of love and joy and thankfulness for you. And help us to do all this relying on your power, your energy, which you so greatly work within us. A strength beyond ourselves, a stamina beyond ourselves, and a love for others that is not of ourselves, but is your love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and your love for our neighbors, Lord. May these things carry us along the path of faithfulness for the glory of your name, our Savior. We thank you and we praise you as we approach the table, Jesus. Amen.